our spring 2023 metagame update on episode 112 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 112 of So Many Insane Plays, our metagame update for the spring of 2023. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. Steve, it's been a while since we did this, of course, as our audience plainly knows. And we don't have a lot of announcements to pitch. We're in the limbo in the middle parts of the year where we don't have an Eternal Weekend announcement, assuming we'll get one. But we do have something that we can point to in your and my old stomping grounds on the area of Columbus, Ohio. The Buffalo Chicken Dip Legacy <laughs> tournament scene is hosting its first vintage open in September. Now, I know that's a bit of ways away. But for those of you who might be um, longing to travel for a mid to large sized regional vintage event, this is going to be a good one. It's technically in Canal Winchester, Ohio, but the first place prize is an unlimited time vault, which is a good prize for a local tournament such as this. And it is proxy friendly. So you can get some details over at Buffalo Chicken Dip Legacy on Facebook and on Twitter. They are BCD Legacy. So and what's the uh, date for this again? That is September 30. There you go. Yeah. Hopefully we'll have this show posted by then. <laughs> Steve, what else do you have for announcements for us? Well, I just want to encourage our listeners to send in announcements for vintage paper events. It just seems like during the pandemic, so many venues and places where vintage was played have dried up or disappeared. Mm. And we're trying to support those the reemergence of paper vintage. So if you have anything, please send it our way and we'll make sure that we retweet it through our our uh, uh, podcast account. But also, Kevin, we got to find out when Eternal Weekend's going to be. I know, right? I'm hoping... So what would be, what would be your best guess? Well, we've had some really bad precedent set, of course, over the course of the last few years, right? In Definitely. terms of the lateness of the announcement. And so... My instinct still is that it will be targeted for Halloween weekend. Now, yeah. I haven't actually looked ahead at the calendar for when Halloween weekend is vis-a-vis the true weekend. But if I scroll ahead to October right now, I see that the 31st is on a Tuesday. That's no good. So if I had if I had to bet, I would think that the over-under is on the last weekend in October, the 27th and 28th. But in terms of announcement, yeah. who knows, right? Last year it was horrible. I just hope that the the with, pitfalls that be, be you know befell Card Titan last year are, have already been avoided. When did that actually get announced last year? What was my what was your I, recollection I, it, of it? It felt like two months before. <laughs> I, yeah, so that was like in well, it was held in December, or was that right? And so it was announced in October. Yeah, that that feels right. But my, I might be having a little bit of um, jaded memory there. Well, if anyone knows Nick Koss or Card Titan, let's uh, let's push for an earlier announcement, right? <laughs> yes, please. And R.I.P. Udo. Yeah. 
And if anyone else is trying to, you know, hold some events, let us know. That's I'm right. excited to play paper vintage again, Kevin. What about you? Uh, I would be too. It's obviously not much of an option for me locally, but uh, I'm I'm right there with you. And this BCD event is as a good sign for the longer term and the fact that people are willing to hold and promote events that have large prizes. Now, granted, the entry fee is a little bit higher than the five to 20 bucks that you and I used to do, but uh, that's, that's the nature of the world. <laughs> that's the way of the world. True. What, 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 uh, what do you think is the reasonable entry fee these days? Well, it has everything to do with whether or not you're trying to promote a, a big ticket prize, right? For an event like this, their entry fee is $145. Now, that, that entry fee includes lunch, which is ironic, but the, the bottom line is that if you want to sell a big ticket item, you know, the, the cheapest big ticket item that, that's going to appeal to vintage players is probably a dual land, a high-end dual land that, that comes in between five and $700. And then beyond that, as soon as you get to the first piece of power, like they've done here with Time Vault or Approximate Power, the, um, yeah, the price tag is just incredibly high. So if you can't expect to get hundreds of players, if you're going to try and execute on such an event at the the 25 to 40 player size, then entry fee has to be $100 plus, I think, for these kind of events. Yeah, that's that's the new norm, huh? Yeah, I, I think so. Still worth it. Well, you and I are in a, a privileged class where we're used to um, having our vintage events really be large outlays of cash in terms of travel <laughs> and hotels yeah. and, and all that jazz. So. For us, the big ticket events, the $100 or plus entry fee was really not a dissuading factor. But for folks who are just looking to get into their car on a Saturday and drive a couple of states over maybe, a $145 entry fee is a serious outlay. So I can understand if folks balk at that. Fair enough. Yeah. But, you know, the good news is the event is apparently happening. <laughs> I don't know what their policies are for attendance. Maybe they have some details further into their site. I haven't read it. But at the very least, feedback can and should be given to the organizers with respect to how the entry fee impacts your opinion. If you're the sort of person who says, I'd love to go to that, but that's just that's a, a bridge too far, send them a note via Twitter and say, hey, I'll come to this again if you can, if you can have a lower entry point. That's reasonable feedback. What do you think is uh, just for sort of like a, a once a month gathering? What do you think is an appropriate entry fee these days? I would want to see that down to less than fifty dollars, ideally in the twenty to thirty range, I think. But again, it has everything to do with what kind of prize you're promoting. Store yeah. credit, you could go, you could have a five dollar event, right, and you'd still get people. At RIW, we we didn't always get to draw, draw a big crowd, but we had just store credit events in the I forget what it was at the time twenty twenty five dollars something like that. And that was fine just to get the diehards out, you know, for the joy of the, th of the thing. But again, it's uh, most vintage players you and I know are either completely unmotivated by prize or they're looking for a big ticket item, right? Not much in the middle is of interest. And I can say that was the same for me too, right? Like winning an RIW event that was 12 people was never, you know, <laughs> the prize was the afterthought. All it did was yeah. offset by gas to get there for the day or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I don't feel any differently about it right now. I feel like there are diehards who will play no matter the prize. And there are, there are people who are motivated to try and win a time fault. And I think both ends of the spectrum are reasonable. The middle ground is kind of fallow, <laughs> at least in the case of vintage players and probably most eternal players, really. Anyway, it's, it's an interesting topic, and I'm glad to see that uh, 
paper vintage is not wholly dead. No, and hopefully we're, we're on the comeback. Mm-hmm. So beyond that, the purpose of today's show is simply to look at the first four and a half or five months of the year's top eight results, talk about the fluctuations by archetype and how new cards are influencing the format and potentially not influencing the format. So let's dive right in. Steve, as usual for our metagame updates, we are utilizing the vintage streaming community and Discord community's data set, which is being uh, dutifully maintained, and we again express our gratitude to that community for continuing to do so. It's mostly thankless work, aside from the, the niche community that we all are, are members of. We have data, I mean, obviously this data goes back a few years, but we're going to focus on the year-to-date data for 2023, and as of today, that means we're at halfway through May. We've got two weeks worth of challenges for May to discuss as well, but any conclusions on the whole month of May are a little bit premature. One thing that is pretty noteworthy here is that brand new cards have not made an enormous impact on the format. Not to say so that- So brand new meaning- in, in the last, you know, printed this year, in the okay. last quarter. Um, there are some new cards being played. I don't mean to say that there are none. Fun examples include Atraxa, for example. But the metagame shifts that we are observing year to date, January through April of this year and, and into this month, are not defined by new printings. Are and not. Are not defined by new printings. They are defined by good old organic fluctuations, people's preferences, and responses to archetypes and matchups, I would argue. And there's a really good demonstration of this simply in the carryover from Champs last year, which you and I touched on during our coverage. And we, I wouldn't say predicted, but we anticipated and I think we have been vindicated in the sense that the initiative deck that won Champs, that is to say North American Paper Champs last year, and was very popular for the, the time immediately preceding and postseding Champs, that deck has fallen back to what I would call a nominal but still powerful level. And by that I mean, as a specific example, it was the most popular individual archetype, sub-archetype, in January and in March. And it was really close in the, in the months of April and May. But it has been surpassed on more than one occasion. And we'll get into the details of who and when. But I think... It's it's obvious that the initiative mechanic was not hit with bans like it was in other formats due to its overrepresentation. In vintage, it's still humming along at a reasonable clip, but it is not the dominant force that it was at champs and in the immediately preceding weeks. I think that pretty much encapsulates what we're seeing in the format. Strong decks remain strong. Any given challenge can be won by almost any given deck, really. <laughs> and the jockeying for position amongst matchups is the name of the game if you want to be a consistent performer in the in the metagame that sounds uh like a lot of vintage metagames a lot of healthy vintage metagames totally agree and i would describe this vintage metagame as healthy we have a couple of spikes here and there of because i wouldn't say flash in the pan but you know very good months for certain decks certain certain archetypes but none of it has been sustained 
for a prolonged period. And that, I think, demonstrates the organic shift that we've come to expect really from vintage. Hasn't been upheaved for any long period of time, more than a couple of months, um, for quite a while now. So carrying over from Champs, the dominant deck going into January of this year was the the Mono White Initiative deck. Yes. And it can <laughs> Which we covered. Yeah, which we covered in, in a lot of detail. It's and breakout. It, yeah. Right? I mean, that was its break coming out party. Sort Definitely. Of. And it dominated the conversation in our year in review, too, back in Q1. And that is borne out in the results from the first month of the year. Initiative was number one in a sub-archetype standpoint, and aggro as a roll-up archetype was number one. Initiative by itself was 18 or, well, 18.8, so 19% of the metagame. Again, a healthy number, not a problematic one, not the sort of one that we look at and say we've got to watch this, just the most dominant single deck. And in January, it was by a, a sizable margin because the next most numerous deck was less than half as much, Doomsday at 8.5%. Wow. Yeah. It's crushing. But that was the highest point in terms of representation for initiative for the rest of the year so far. It was all downhill from there. Because following Doomsday in January, let me just set the stage here, following Doomsday at 8.5%, the next two represented, most represented archetypes were Jeskai at 7.5 and Countervine at 6.5. And that is foreshadowing. <laughs> so the Jeskai decks and the Doomsday and Countervine decks, all three of them that is to say, second, third, and fourth place in January, all of them conspired to gain ground on initiative in, in February. And another little thing happened, <clears throat> which is interesting and speaks to the organic change in the metagame, because a variant of initiative, which has come to be called Initiative Tinker, was spawned to the tune of 2% representation. Not a lot, but it looks like that 2% combined with the previous second, third, and fourth decks, it all came out of the initiative's representation. Hmm. Because now this initiative Tinker deck is an interesting animal. Picture Esper Tinker, that is to say your, your Tinker for Citadel, Key Vault kind of primary plan deck that also includes the white initiative creatures as a plan B of sorts that is very potent, but you're not all in on getting through with combat damage. It's kind. It's similar to, though not the same, it's similar to the function that Urza Saga plays in modern Tinker decks as a, if you, can't, if you are able to stymie plan A, which is usually Tinker, then plan B of make enormous constructs that are uncounterable can sometimes finish the deal. Well, these initiative Tinker decks, I think, were founded on that principle, that here is an excellent plan B, which can provide advantage and can become overwhelming if too many resources are spent stopping the tinker plan. Reminds me of, you know, the the hybridization concept back in the day of nonlinearity, of having multiple angles of attack, both of which are difficult to deal with, and if one falls through, then the other comes through. And and, and that's essentially a dredge with hollow hollow one that was essentially introduced in the dredge archetype as well. You could just okay, you're gonna stop me from dredging, I'll just smash you with juggernauts. Yes, absolutely. And as we get further into the year, you'll find that Initiative Tinker takes a bit more of a foothold in the metagame as a percentage so overall. So interesting. I mean, we should have known <laughs> that Blue would assimilate these initiative <laughs> creatures into them. I mean, that's what it always does, right? I mean, it's yeah. like the one exception 
has generally been Thalia because Thalia is just antithetical. Taxing is it'd be like trying to play, you know, a force of will deck with spheres of resistance. Right. It just generally doesn't happen. But right. we've always seen historically that the blue decks will take the best creatures of any color and incorporate them into it. Doesn't matter what it is, right? It's like if there's enough advantage to be derived from it, no matter the type of advantage, virtual advantage, tempo advantage, card advantage, mana advantage, Lotus Cobra, you know, it will it will find its way into the blue shell. And you're saying that's what's happening. Yep, exactly. You're exactly right. And interestingly, in, in hindsight, I remembered that it was not a breakout at, in, uh, at Champs in any way. But you and I did cover one match of initiative that featured blue power and not a force of will deck, but just close to mono white initiative that included things right. like splash of blue. Yeah, ancestral time walk brainstorm. And I think that deck had Lavinia in it as well. And I remember thinking at the time, it's not clear to me whether or not this is just a an aberrant, an aberration, or if this is the future of this archetype. And it turns out it wasn't the future, because that particular flavor, which was heavily white splashing blue it never really manifests as any kind of a larger portion of the metagame. But this thing that you're talking about, this hybridization, has really cemented itself as a, a viable variant. Its numbers throughout the year so far have never quite um, reached or surpassed the mono-white version, but it is clearly established, and we'll see some of the Can more you, greater numbers soon. It's going to be hard to sort of encode this on audio podcast. Can you just give just give us a rundown of what this deck look, looks like? Give us a rundown because the meat and potatoes of it. Because, Kevin, I remember, you know, you might remember 20 years ago, one of the fundamental questions people would think of is how how can I, how many blue cards can do I need to run Force of Will? <laughs> was the fundamental question. <laughs> and there, were yeah. no, there was never a firm answer to that. But basically the comfort level was somewhere around like 18, 19. You kind of needed to get a comfort and so one of the problems with the initiative is that you have a certain density of these white creatures, right, Kevin? Right. So how what what do you need to build around it? What kind of blue spells do you need to make it a viable force of will deck, right? Yeah. And so tell me, Kevin, tell me, what do these decks look like? So they look much closer to Esper Tinker than they do to initiative. The only give real... Me, give us an example. Give us a rundown. Yeah. The only real DNA they share with the Tinker deck is the eight initiative creatures. So... A common example of this kind of list will have the eight initiative creatures in mono white from mono white, okay. plus some small the, number of Lavinia or and or hull breachers. Okay, so there's part there's some blue right yeah. there. Yeah, three so or it's four. So it's got the plume adventure, the dungeoneer, Lavinia, hull breacher. Yep, boy, that's uh, usually the creature package plus or minus a few. So th there's both pressure and they 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 generate advantage of all. Each of those creatures generates a type of advantage. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah, and, and in my opinion, Lavinia is really kind of the linchpin that um, cements this variation of initiative as attractive. As for reasons that you and I discussed during our coverage at Champs, Lavinia is a real haymaker at, at having that disruptive advantage against a number of archetypes, and especially good in things like um, Tinker Mirrors, where not being able to deploy mocks and aggressively not being able to, to back up with force, that kind of thing is just backbreaking in a lot of matchups. But the thing to keep in mind, too, is that there's none of the supporting material that makes the mono-white initiative deck disruptive in these Esper Tinker lists. All the other disruptive components are not here. That is to say, Lavinia, um, Archon of Ameria, which is enormous, 
um, the, the anointed peacekeeper, any of the other components are gone. Everything else is DNA from a tinker deck. That is to say <laughs> you're a force of will deck, usually with extra supporting counters, one or two force of negation, some fluster storms, perhaps mental misstep, of course, all the other tutor and restricted card packages. So all the power plus vampiric demonic, sometimes not mystical in order to make room. And then full moxin, including mana crypt, as you would expect, Bolas Citadel, Time Vault, Manifold Key, Sensei's Divining Top, that traditional Tinker package. So it's the Tinker deck stripped down to its bare bones, reducing usually the, the total counterspell suite, reducing some of the ex- extraneous copies of things like this, a second Divining Top, for example, or extra force of negations and flusters to just shoehorn in basically these eight white creatures and these lists still retain the urza saga technology mind you which definitely puts extra pressure on the mana develop development for the deck but you just can't avoid the power of saga and these tinker lists being able to find your uncounterable manifold key and or just continue that alternate pressure i am not sure uh what the future is going to hold for this deck but it was not a flash in the pan it really wasn't so just focusing on the initiative tinker deck itself after being basically invented in Jan- in February to the tune of 2%. Since then, it has been 8 and 7 and 5 and a quarter percent of the following months. Not exactly gangbusters, but how has it done? So it's been percentage of the metagame. How has it been in terms of its overall performance? Th- that Those numbers, sorry, Steve, are percentages of top eights. Okay. Yeah, not still that's not, not overall exactly, metagame. Still not percentage. exactly dominance. That's usually like... No. That... To, to me, that signals sort of like tier two, two and a half deck. Except, 5%. yeah, except that in the course of those months, it, like it's 8% representation in March was the third largest representation in the metagame in terms of top eights. That sounds about right. Yeah. So it's it's been healthy is what I would say. But, Respectable. Not overtaking so you, its, <laughs> its mono-white companion. Just to give you kind of heuristic, you know, it, with the exception of, of duopoly metagames or dominant deck metagames and a healthy metagame, Usually, the best performing deck is somewhere between twelve and eighteen percent of top eights, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then the second best performing deck is somewhere between nine and fifteen percent of top eights, and then the third best performing deck is usually around six to eleven or twelve percent of top eights. So you're saying that's your that neatly falls into sort of like the third performing. Yes. Okay. Yes, totally agree. But but it's not been on an upward trajectory. No, it's not. it has not, but it has also not diminished a great deal. You know, going from eight to five and a quarter percent is not a huge diminishment in terms of metagame or top eight percentage. Sure. Yeah, but no. it's not growing month after it, month. It's not growing either. No. Uh, so I, I mentioned that just as it is, well, it, it has a respectable representation is what I would say. Let's try and dig a little bit more into the details. So what is it competing against? So we've already talked about Doomsday. Yeah. Right. So going back to how initiative had a had a major decline between January and February. Reminder: nineteen percent in January. It went down to eleven percent in February, a pretty yeah. sizable decline, and was overtaken by Countervine. Ah, Countervine. Yeah. Countervine. So unpack how that's. Con- well, I just want to know. I'm so one of the things that's motivating the question I had is that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we were when we were covering the top eight, we both felt that that these disruptive threats are just devastating for Doomsday. Doomsday has so few answers, except just win quickly mm-hmm. to 
things like Thalia and all that nonsense, right? So what what are the tactical things that you're seeing in the metagame? So we've got initiative being assimilated into the blue shell, the tinker shell. We've got um, bizarre decks competing. We've got Doomsday there. What is it tactically that you see that's helping keep these initiative things from getting too out of control? Like we thought they might have, you know, six, seven months ago. What is it? And what is it in Countervine? So t- give me a rundown of what the counter, give our audience a rundown <laughs> of the Countervine deck. So the basic structure of the Countervine deck is this. It is an eight root walla, eight squee kind of design with Vengevines. And when I say eight squee, I mean four squee, Goblin Nabob, <laughs> and four Master of Death. Yeah. And Master of Death is very important as a squee model because it is a blue card that you can pitch to Bazaar, say, on turn one, and then return and hold in your hand to support a Force of Will or a Force of Negation and subsequent turns. The Countervine deck gets its name because it has a ton of counterspells main deck, it's got four Force of Will, four Mind Break Trap, and four Force of Negation. So twelve, fully 12 <laughs> pitch counters, well, of plus a sort. Plus misstep. Plus misstep, that's right. And also usually features a snapback, which and is... And by the way, misstep, a, that's 13, plus the four Masters of Vine, you hit the 17 that we talked about earlier. Uh, that's right. And, and then a few snapback just for cushion. Yep. yep. And snapback, for those who don't really know, is an unsummon that you can pitch in the Force of Will style. Oh, for the days where it started four Force of Will, four Mana Drain, four Brainstorm. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> four Brainstorm. <laughs> Got your 12 right there. Don't forget four Merchant Scroll. <laughs> okay. Those, yeah. But that, that wasn't quite as ubiquitous, but yes. Yeah, that's so, 16 right there. And to round out the pitch cards, too, this deck uh, features prominently Force of Vigor. And do I they think- ever use, uh, also, do they ever use Misdirection still? I mean, I remember some of the... Andy Markiton versions had a lot of misdirection. I think it has been a long time since misdirection has made an appearance. That is, it's just, you just don't have that luxury these days. Fair enough. Yeah. So, the, so these decks, these decks, and then the kills are uh, Hollow Vine, the um, Venge Vine. Yeah. Hollow One, Venge Vine, and what else? In terms of. Um, the, uh, just the Root Wallas and the Venge yep. Vines and the Hollow Ones is really it. They don't have any other way to get through. Um, it depends. So there are, there are variations on the bizarre archetypes that focus on different mechanics, different tactical right. mechanics. Some have death rights, etc. That's right. That's right. Some have um, uh, cradle to support casting more creatures. And those decks feature things like collector oof, which this list has is never planning to cast. This list does not have mana producing lands that are intended to cast spells. It has strip mine and wasteland, but those are spells uncounterable spells. So, the thing that I note about the Mono White Initiative deck is that it is, it's very fast deploying to the table, naturally, but it's, and so it can win a lot of games even against Bizarre decks on the play just by virtue of the power of either being much faster or getting a, some kind of key disruptive element like a first turn, say, um, Anointed Peacekeeper on Bizarre of Baghdad. That's a, that's a backbreaker against almost any Bizarre deck if it resolves. However, their tactics against uh, graveyard-based decks are not, um, they're not new. So when you look at a common mono-white initiative deck, for example, the only way they're fighting a bizarre-based, a bizarre graveyard-based deck, I should say, coming out of the sideboard is usually Tabernacle and Leyline. Those are not new techniques for the bizarre decks. 
No, they're not at all. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what that tells me is that it gives the bizarre pilots an opportunity to adapt even with existing tools, which is textbook what I'm referring to when I talk about organic ad- adaptation. And sure enough, going from between uh, January and February, where initiative went down from 19 to 11, Countervine went up from six and a half to 11 and a half. And that to me is representation of pure uh, adjusting to the matchup. The Countervine didn't stay on top, but it was the number one represented top eight uh, archetype, sub archetype in February at 11 and a half percent. It stood above initiative, mono white initiative. And also, Doomsday gained ground, too, from 8.5 to 10, just a little bit. But note that Initiative was only at 11. So Doomsday gained a little bit of, of, of numbers over Initiative. That's the closest they would come, though, for the rest of the year, because Doomsday, it does still have a bad matchup against the Initiative deck. So, so the bottom line is that February represented a, a true consolidation. February, everything kind of congealed around the the top few decks being in the 9 to 11% range. There were four decks in that range, including Jeskai in fourth place. Then things started to differentiate themselves a little bit again. Going into March, the initiative reasserted itself up to 14.6%. And all that all those numbers came at the expense of Countervine and Doomsday who who suppressed back down to the 7.5 to 8.5 range. So initiative was back on top near 15%. And the initiative Tinker deck, now this is tracked separately, mind you, surged to 8%. So it's pretty noteworthy that if, you're, if you were to combine initiative-based archetypes, which we don't really in these numbers because the decks play differently, right? One's pure yeah, aggro, one's but, more of a combo aggro. But they, but they are anchored by the same tactic. So That's I right. So fine. if you're looking so at my, those eight initiative creatures, those creatures surged up to 23% of the metagame. Nice. In, in terms of top eights. That's a that's a, a fair surge. But it wasn't the highest point for Mono White Initiative. That's that point was still January. This is the highest point for the Esper Tinker deck. And I think, again, speaking to organic change, that's part of its newness, right? As people were getting excited by this Esper Tinker deck and about the, the notion of the hybridization, it got a little more attention and also a little bit more surprise factor. What's it like to play against a deck that goes turn one White Plume Adventure or turn two Tinker? right? <laughs> if you've never seen yeah. that happen, you could be understood to, to not be prepared for it and not, not, be, not be planning against it. It's also possible to lose a game one to initiative tinker because they go turn one white plume, turn two Urza Saga seasoned engineer, and you could conceivably lose that game without ever seeing blue mana, right? <laughs> they could play a waste, not a wasteland, but they could play a, 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 just a, a Sol Ring or uh, you know, mana crypt or whatever for their land, their mana, and you don't notice the fact that this game included Sapphire and Ruby too. Like, there's nothing they expose to you that's a Tinker deck, and so you sideboard accordingly. And then in game two, they go land mana crypt Tinker, <laughs> and you have no outs. So I, I just I, I mentioned that because I think that the surprise value and the novelty of the initiative Tinker deck probably led to its first true month being its highest. So you don't see it continuing upwards, is what you're saying. I don't see, see countervailing it, forces. I don't see it continuing upwards. It. Yeah, uh, my my impression of the initiative tinker deck is that it is a novel combination of factors, all of them powerful, but also not very synergistic. Right? There's nothing inherently good that combines White Plume Adventurer and Time Vault. There's no yeah. inherent synergy between White Plume Adventurer and Hull Breacher. 
right? Like right. it just has it has powerful cards, but it's possible to get some dissynergistic combinations of them and not have them be good enough. And so I think there's a natural inherent ceiling on how effective that deck can be. What it trades in novelty, it loses in consistency naturally. Let's go on to the next deck. So the story of March going into April is the decline of the initiative decks and some general reassertion of uh, the, the new guard. It's a subtle thing, but over the course of January, February, and March, combo shops has risen from five to six to seven and a half to nine percent. And all of a sudden combo shops, that is jewel shops, is in second place in April behind the initiative and not far behind either nine to 12 percent. Everything else has fallen a little bit more. Doomsday's at seven and a half. Dredge has, has surged a little bit to above eight. Regular initiatives, mono white initiative is down below 12. The initiative tinker deck falls below seven. Combo shops is asserting itself. This, this list, by the way, you'll find it under paradoxical outcome on MTG Goldfish, which is not incorrect, but for those of us who have been playing PO since day one, it does kind of evoke a different deck just by that title. Four, so, so April was a bit of a consolidation for the top performers, the ascendancy of combo shops, and that brings us into early May. Now, unfortunately, May is incomplete, but for the first half of May, Combo shops, that is to say, jewel shops, is dominating. 17.7%. It almost doubled its number from, from the prior two months. And the strange thing is that hasn't come as much at the expense of the initiative deck as just everything else. Doomsday is down below six. Dredge is down below wow. six. Just guys at seven. That's third place. But combo shops, jewel shops surged up to almost 18% suppressing the initiative deck down to 11 and so it stands above the rest for the first half of may so far and again no new printings i want to be i want to be clear about that for those of you who aren't familiar with this um jewel shops deck it's predicated on the notion of coveted jewel being a, both a draw engine and a mana source that is very powerful if you can get to the six mana to cast it and very fun to copy with things like phyrexian metamorph the deck got a shot in the arm with the printing of the Mightstone and Weakstone from Phyrexia, but it took a while for that technology to really manifest. When you and I talked about the Mightstone and Weakstone, we talked about how it could it has a, a nice function as a role player, right? It's right there in the in the text box. Draw two cards or target creature gets minus five, minus five. Well, if you have the sort of deck that's riddled with artifacts, four grim monoliths forged uh, coveted jewels you know and mox opals you know how vulnerable you are to collector roof hmm. yes but when you're a, a mishra's workshop deck and in an ancient tomb deck and there's a saga deck you know that a five mana artifact is not that difficult to cast even when you've been null rotted and sure enough this might stone and weak stone have proved an effective counter tactic to decks that sometimes main deck collector oof like and have we ever seen shop use a, tact a counter tactic like this? I mean, is there anything you can think of not, that shops has used to overcome null rod effects? Like not that? in a long time. I mean, we've seen so dismember counts, right? Dismember has been yeah. a staple at fighting collector oof for a long time, among other things. But the only thing I can think of is, well, you and I have lived through a long enough period where null rod was not the sort of thing that shops did, and not the sort of sort of thing that people even brought in against shops, right? 
because it was laughable. But there was a, you know, there was a period of time when Ubistax came out and just became the, the null rod deck du jour. But that's not what you're asking about. What you're asking about really started with, in my opinion, it started with the null rod aggro decks from the early 2000s, of which there are many variations, right? Various fish decks, noble and otherwise. And, but null rod really was not, you know, it was, it was always relegated to like a third tier archetype. That is to say, there was nothing you could do that you could play a null rod on turn one, but there's nothing you could do to follow up to really seal the deal reliably back in those days. It was all chip, small creatures, chip shot damage, and relying on your wastelands to slow them down enough. But when Collector Roof was printed, that was a real sea change. And sure enough, Collector Roof is powerful enough because it's, it, it is in itself its own clock. And oh, by the way, it has been embraced by a certain subset of the Bizarre decks, the Holovine decks, and the the, the decks the, the the Bizarre decks that feature Gaia's Cradle and sometimes Hogak. And those lists have embraced main deck Collector Oof to the degree that they're fast enough and the overcoming the Collector Oof is just enough of a roadblock to, to suppress these kind of artifact-based decks enough. So to answer your question, I think requires a little bit more specificity in terms of the time period. There's not a good example of a specific anti-null rod tech that workshop decks have employed that I can think of. I obviously played so a number of... this is a new of, moment than yeah. in the evolution of the shop archetype. Yeah. That's what you're saying. I obviously played a number of five-color workshop decks back in the day that had disenchant effects in them, but those disenchant effects were not targeted at null rods at, in, during, during those time periods. I really do think that... There's really, it, historically speaking, prior to Collector Oof, you, there's re, you can't really point to a workshop-based anti-null rod card that was ubiquitous. Compared to? Compared to um, a Dismember, specifically. Yeah. Dismember is probably the most common, throughout the last 30 years, the most common workshop anti-null rod technology, but that's specifically because Collector Oof came to pass. And Dismember was already being used, mind you. But it just became a requirement. And these decks have point. like four dismembers in their sideboards. Yes. Yes. And the Might Stone and Weak Stone is a flexible enough card that it can be main deck, which is part of the beauty, right? If yeah. there's no collector roof in play, it's just draw two, which is fantastic. A draw two on a mana producer. It's right. fantastic, right? But this doesn't kill this doesn't kill or deal with null rod. No, absolutely. But null rod is at a low ebb right now. Null rod is really only being played in um Gosh, where is where's is, where is Nullrod even being played? It's in the sideboard of the Mono White Initiative decks, but not even as a four of necessarily. Now, granted, it's it might seem disingenuous to say that <laughs> one of the top decks in the format is playing Nullrod, but it, they're not playing a main deck, right? You would not describe the Mono White Initiative as a Nullrod deck. It's just one tactic that they have for matchups specifically like this. And oh, by the way, the you know the modern Tinker decks. While they are disrupted by Null Rod in that they can't win via Time Vault while the, the Rod is in play, they have multiple alternate solutions, right? Urza Saga gives them an out, a thing to use artifacts for, even if those artifacts can't activate. And Bolas's Citadel, obviously, is still a gigantic card advantage engine, even with a, an Oof or a Rod in play. And many of the common decks have access to Sphinx of the Steel Wind, if not main post-sideboard, in addition to other answers to the Rod or the Oof. And so Null Rod, it just can't be viewed as uh, a slam dunk against modern Tinker decks. It simply isn't. 
the Grixis versions have access to creatures that can be used as alternate win conditions between Ragavan and Hull Breachers and such. These Esper Initiative versions obviously have an, a, a dozen or more creatures in them. And so you simply can't rely on Rod and Oof as primary disruption packages or uh, slam dunk disruption packages any longer. It's very good, mind you, against these uh, these jewel decks. The jewel decks do have Urza's Saga, but their mana base is, again, heavily uh, artifact-based. But even then, they do have the capacity to win the game on turn one because of the speed and power facilitated by Coveted Jewel. And they do have the power to just power through uh, a Null Rod or an Oof via Urza's Saga, and especially facilitated by Ancient Tomb. It's not unheard of for the coveted jewel decks to deploy a giant threat on the first turn could be a coveted jewel that doesn't finish the game or it could be just a a setup turn where they draw some cards and deploy some mana if that turn includes Urza's Saga they have a very real packup plan in the terms of in in the form of turn two ancient tomb to fight through rod and oof and oh by the way they're bringing in dismembers but they also have access to giant creatures out of the sideboard like worm coil engines if they want to take that route too So at the moment, uh, I'm not predicting that the month of May is going to necessarily conclude with near 20% representation in top eights by jewel shops. (laughs) Uh, Such a thing is possible. But I think the story so far for this year has simply been organic fluctuation. Initiative has been the deck to beat. And on multiple occasions and multiple different matchups, it has been beat. It's been best in representation by Countervine and jewel shops and tied by doomsday in february it's had its portion of the metagame eroded by the initiative tinker variant which is a meaningfully different deck and oh by the way the trend line is down it looked at looking average wise over the first four months of the year it it peaked at the start of the year and is at its lowest point thus far in may at 10 percent steve i think you said it early this uh, this to me depicts health New cards aren't running roughshod over the metagame. Atraxa was integrated, for example, but not in a deleterious sense. So we've got a sense now of the metagame. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the impact of the new cards from this year. So let's just go through them in a list form. What of the two major sets, what are the two biggest, or the, sorry, just give us top to bottom the biggest impact cards. Yeah, and in holding with our prior observations, new cards aren't really the defining factor in any of these shifts. In fact, there haven't been many new cards that have really been making a difference. So a couple of standout examples. From the Phyrexia All Will Be One set, Atraxa has become a bit of a staple in certain archetypes. Used very commonly in Oath these days, as well as some other spicy show-and-tell type variants, which haven't been doing very well. And just for our listeners, Atraxa, give the description. Oh, that's Atraxa Grand Unifier, yeah. (laughs) So this is the new seven-mana Atraxa that when she comes in, you reveal the top ten cards of your deck. And you get to put one card of each type from those revealed cards into your hand. And she's a giant 7-7 seven, seven flying lifelink vigilance. I don't even remember all of her. It's a huge list of stuff. Yeah. Um, so she's enormous and gives you a ton of card advantage. And is very synergistic in, in a lot of ways because that card advantage is not drawing. So she sidesteps yeah. things like Narset and Hullbreacher. The old <laughs> reveal. Or the yeah. old set aside. <laughs> and... And interestingly enough, too, she award, she rewards a certain diversity of card selection in your archetype, yes. right? So you want sorceries, w- instants, artifacts, yeah. creatures, and that plays very well with Oath, land. right? With Oath, where you usually have a selection of 
mana accelerants for artifacts. Oath is obviously an enchantment. But you usually have a selection of planeswalkers. Yeah. Yes. And it's notable that she also includes the new battle card type, which is what, what yeah. was so noteworthy about her preview because we didn't know what a battle was then. Battles haven't made a splash is in vintage this, yet. I really don't expect so them to. So it's blue. She's blue. She's everything but red. She's everything but red. Absolutely. And she, just for the record, she has flying, vigilance, death touch, and lifelink. There is <laughs> she really better than Gristlebrand, though? For real? Um, I think the answer is because a qualified yes. Yeah. Um, because of vigilance, for one, right? She's got that steel hellkite, not steel hellkite, um, Sphinx of the Steel Wind effect, yes. where she plays both offense and defense with lifelink, which means it's almost impossible for a creature-based strategy to to beat you in a, in a way that's not yeah. true for Gristlebrand, right? right? You you can lose with Gristlebrand in play against that big enough aggro deck. It's a little dicey, but you can, yeah. It's dicey, but still, she has that effect of why Sphinx of the Steel Wind is so useful, right? And such a, a, a game closer when it's the right thing to do. And the other thing is she pitches to all of the pitch magic Every cards. Every single right? one of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's, she's like the pitch magic wild card, which right. we know has a little bit of value. Force of Vigor, yeah. Yeah. And also, unlike Gristlebrand, she chains well into subsequent copies of herself. Same because more. the first oh, because that comes into the, play. Yeah, because the first Atraxa can reveal another Atraxa, and if you have any way oh to cycle God. them, like you can just oath into a second Atraxa and draw more cards, which Gristlebrand can't actually do. Right. So right? you could find her and a Force of Will, and then pitch the second one to Force, is what you're saying, or to Force of Vigor. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And if you happen to be in a show and tell strategy, you can just show and tell a second copy in and still get all of the value. Yeah. So she has a lot of tactical advantages over any other oath creature. And that's, I think that's why she's making such a strong appearance. And I think she'll, until we get the next big thing, I think she'll really be a common occurrence. I'm really interested in the fact that the, some of these oath decks are not playing Max Moxon. Yeah. Well, Oath hasn't been having a really good time of it lately. In terms of top eight representation, let me look at Oath. This Oath deck has so, no rods in the sideboard, which is a real flashback. Yeah. Know? Yeah, Oath's been holding steady at about 5%. 5 to that's 6. Good. It peaked at 6 in March. I mean, that's that's pretty common for Oath. But what that tells us is that Atraxa didn't really move the needle on Oath in terms of matchups. It doesn't really let that deck do something it couldn't do before. And so I think we're going to continue to see Atraxa in the same kind of ways you see Gristlebrand. A common oath target, and when a, a deck needs a quirky go-to either reanimation or show-and-tell type target, she's probably going to be it for the foreseeable future. Especially because she plays so nicely with forces of vigor and negation and will in Vintage. Yeah. But moving on in terms of other new cards, and one that has really staked its claim recently from March of the Machine is Phyrexian Sensor. This is the kind of Phyrexian-specific variant of Archon of Ameria that says it's a 3-mana 3-3. It says players can't play more than one non-Phyrexian spell each turn and non-Phyrexian creatures under the battlefield tapped. So it plays the very similar role to Archon of Ameria. It's not as quite as comprehensive. The, the, you know, the, the clause is a, has some exception to it, which is rarely matters. But it doesn't affect lands, which is a big difference. Yeah. So it is a bit of a downgrade. But it does have one more power, and it but does kind of double up. And, you, and you something being 75%. So hold on. You say that that's a downgrade, but against the Vengevine decks, that's definitely not a downgrade. You know, that's a fair point. That's right. It has positive upside against Vengevine. And also the Dredge decks. I mean, what <laughs> it does to Dredge. All of the, the, the bumbling bridge creatures mm -hmm. come into play tapped. Are they, or are they yeah. Frexian? 
I don't know. Uh, no, I don't think any of yeah. them are. You're right. It has a very overpowering effect against Ikerid and Vengevine. <laughs> Ikerid. Yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, my point was going to be simply that a card being about 75% as good as uh, Archon of Ameria still. is still Up really, top really tier. good. <laughs> vintage, yeah. d- vintage disruption. Because, <laughs> because of how, yeah, how disruptive Archon is, you can dial that back a little and still have a very good vintage Let's card. Let's just for a moment can we just recap all the labor the playable arcane laboratory effects that are currently in vintage? So Ooh, there's fun. Yeah, so there's Arcane <laughs> Laboratory, which is not really playable. Then there <laughs> no. is the two mana artifact creature. Remind me what that creature is called again. I've now forgotten. That you can only play Help more than one non artifact spell per turn. Oh, uh, it's white. Yes. I was thrown off. You're talking about Ether Sworn Cannonist. Yes. Yes. Ether Sworn Cannonist uh, has been totally yeah. displaced. Yeah. Then what else? Well, there's the white version of Arcane um, Lab, which yeah. is Rule of Law. Rule of Law, then yes. Then there's the, the Enchantment Creature version, which is the Eidolon of Rhetoric, oh. which saw some mono-white play for a while. Yeah. And then, obviously, the Archon of Ameria and the new Sensor, which are really the modern equivalents so of the Eidolon of Rhetoric. That's it. Only five. Wow. Yeah. Eidolon of Rhetoric, by the way, is I'd forgotten, is a 1-4. So, hardly, <laughs> hardly... A, a playable. They, yeah. they really wanted to keep it safe. Uh, yeah. I remember Aethersworn Canada's was kind of like a paradigm shifter. That was a huge yeah. play because so disruptive when it came out in sort of like the Turbo Xerox times. Um, wow. Yeah, and if Vintage, if Vintage was, if Vintage's mono white aggro deck was sim- more like what it is in other formats like Modern, where it's very artifact based, and you yeah. were using things like Esper Sentinel. I think Aether Sworn Canonist would be a huge component of those decks. It just so happens that n- none of the modern creatures that comprise that deck are artifact creatures, and so the Canonist has no real value. Wow. True. Yeah. But there's a there, there's an alternate timeline where Mono White was more of an artifact creature deck, and Canonist would be a slam dunk in that deck, I think. So this this might be the second best uh, Arcane Lab in the format right now. Yeah. Potentially, and it's not That's that really far behind because it's it's situationally better against the bizarre decks. Which, I mean, going back to the top, you were saying that countervine is the counter punch to these decks. Mm-hmm. So this could be a huge tempo play against the countervine deck. I mean, if they're trying to, right? I mean, absolutely. At, taken as an aggressive, um, like a turn one play, absolutely. I think it falls off pretty rapidly because those decks tend not to be multi-spell decks after turn two, say, for example, because turn one is really their big right. multi-spell turn. Sometimes they're setting up for a turn two double creature and a double root wall into Venge Find, that kind of thing. Yeah, it prevents them from... Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah, but your, your point is still fair. On the play, it can be pretty disruptive even to turns two and three. And also, let's not, let's not diminish the fact that the mono-white deck being a beatdown deck still gets value if... A, a bizarre decks say turn three creature comes into play tapped, right? There's still inherent advantage of yes. that, even if it wasn't say a hasty creature. Yeah. So these I don't things might that these either. things might be better in the mirror too. Oh, that's a really good point. But again, that's a, a pretty strong play draw thing, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, so on the draw, if you're behind, it doesn't do as nearly as much. I'm just looking. I want. I'm trying to look at these decks again. Uh, let's see. Okay, so I'm just trying to think for a moment. You're playing. You're in the tinker. What do you want to call this? The Tinker uh, Initiative Mirror, right? Mm-hmm. You're probably not going to use you. Don't, so these the Tinker 
the Tinker deck has Archon of Emirian in the sideboard. It uses it. I'm looking at some. Okay. Generally, I don't know if that's universally the case, but I'm looking at some of these lists that have it in the sideboard. My understanding is that is not universal, but I can understand yeah. the value of it and why someone would do it. And the lands, I mean, so preventing an Urza Saga from being used on turn one is not a big loss, <laughs> right? True. But True. what about having their, I don't know, Sphinx of the Steel Wind come into play tapped? Is that a big deal? Could be, if that's the thing that was going to keep them alive, which it frequently is. Yeah. Um, the initiative is not affected by coming into play tapped. So that doesn't stop that, right? So, uh, If you mean the triggered ability yeah. that is the initiative, yes, that's totally true. Just thinking, okay, interesting. Really interesting. It One thing it's going to do is it is going to draw a lot more attention to Phyrexian creatures. <laughs> are there any that we should take note of that are Phyrexian creatures that are played in Vintage? Oh, so there's a two-part answer to that. The um, In terms of new ones, I would argue no, but... The the answer is tricky because new creatures are being evaluated all the time, and, the whole, and we got a whole bunch of them in recent sets. So when you look at the population of tech of literal Phyrexian creatures from March of the Machine and from Phyrexian all will be, Phyrexia all will be one. The short answer is basically no. There's nothing that we really need to pay attention to. You've you've already heard about all the creatures that are I would argue. Um, vintage playable in that context. However, I would posit that there are more Phyrexian creatures than you know about because of past edits, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Uh, revisionist Just history give us a on a creature give us, being, yeah. being a Phyrexian. Okay, so let me go all the way back in time. So er- early creatures from Urza's saga, you know, uh, there's no surprise there. Phyrexian Dreadnought, for example, <laughs> now Phyrexian. <laughs> Awesome. Right? Yes. Phyrexian Negator. Okay, I would now have expected nothing a, less a on that Phyrexian, one. right? Yes. So the stuff from Saga Block is no surprise. There's a whole raft of creatures with Phyrexian in their name back then. But then there's this there's this mid-tier, mid-term stuff. I'm trying to find a really good example that might surprise you. I mean, not that I'm saying Phyrexian Gator, Negator should have, or Phyrexian Dreadnought should have surprised you, but it, it's not the first thing you would think of. Here's an example. Worm Coil Engine. <laughs> Ah, it's Phyrexian. Yeah. Now think about that. Wormcoil engine's actually pretty, you know, frequently played in Vintage, mostly in the sideboard, of course. Well, we talked about how there's four ofs in some of the Jewel Shop decks, right? So if you're a mono-white initiative deck and you slam down your Phyrexian sensor and you're going to town on your beatdown, that Wormcoil engine that your opponent responds with doesn't come into play tapped because it's Phyrexian, and that could be a huge, huge disruptive roadblock. It's also worth noting, though this, I don't know if this matters really in any way. I'd have to check some really quirky rules scenarios, but Phyrexian Metamorph is now a Phyrexian. <laughs> awesome. And, well, and what that means, though that matters though, right? What yes. that means is that your jewel, again, your Jewel Shop's opponent, if you have a sensor out, your Jewel Shop's opponent could realistically top deck a, a coveted jewel and cast it, as their first and only non-Phyrexian spell for the turn, and they could draw and deploy a Worm Coil Engine and a Phyrexian Metamorph <laughs> because those two follow-up spells are both Phyrexians and therefore aren't slowed oh by your sensor. Hilarious. Yeah. A, okay, couple so of other, a couple of other interesting examples that do or have seen play. Porcelain Legionnaire 
You remember that? No, remind me. It's this first strike creature, <laughs> I think. The three one first striker that costs two and a, a Phyrexian white used to be played in shops, uh, aggro shops for a while. Chancellor of the Annex is an interesting one. Not that that's so. Ever this cast, is the giant. But... No, you're right. It's rarely it rarely is, but it's the giant four dub 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 angel that has that beginning of game reveal uh, force spike effect. That card has become very commonly played in mono white initiative, and so again. It, you just said it's not very commonly cast, but it could be in a late game scenario when the board is stalled out. Also, here's a, here's a cute one. Phyrexian Revoker. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Yes. So my point is simply that there are more Phyrexians going on in Vintage than you might at first think. Commonly played things have been retconned to be Phyrexians and other things that even have Phyrexian you know, in the title, like Revoker. We just never really internalize them as being Phyrexian cards, as that, that, that being a functional characteristic. Now we must. Now we have to pay attention mm-hmm. to that. Yep. All right. Well, I, we didn't do set reviews for March of the Machines, but Phyrexian Sensor, let's make way. Right? <laughs> That's right. I mean, we're going to see this card around yep. for a while. Well, and there's one other, not Phyrexian, but there's one other example that we have to talk about in terms of new cards making waves, and that's pretty fresh because Fairy Mastermind has started to claw its way into Vintage. Yes, very cool card. Could this card, Kevin, join that hallowed, you know, circle of the two-mana super creatures? You know, (laughs) could it? Well, it's really interesting because I think the short answer is possibly yes. But its role in that would be incredibly different, yeah. I would argue. You know, you're thinking of probably of, say, Snapcaster Maid. Thalia, right? uh, Young yeah. Pyromancer, I guess now Ragavan sort of takes that spot. But yeah, but yes, traditionally it was, what was it? Dark Confidant. Dark Confidant, uh, uh, Lotus Cobra, um, <laughs> <laughs> Snapcaster Mage. Yeah. Uh, yes, Thalia, and then Young Pyromancer was the, was the cycle. The thing that I find interesting about Fairy Mastermind is there are plenty of scenarios where its triggered ability to draw you extra cards will happen. That's just a given, right? Vintage decks draw cards. Happens all the time. Most decks do it in some way or another. Not every, but most. Being able to navigate yourself to the point where you have the superfluous two mana and you can flash it in at the right time and you're not tapped out and they do the thing. I mean, so it's not a given that you're going to have it and be able to resolve it when that happens. So it's only a part of the time. But you can also that manipulate value. that with its ability. Well, yeah, and that's exactly what I'm getting at, is that it's in an interesting intersection of cards that want to provide long-term advantage, but are aided by cards that provide explosive advantage. And by that, I mean it's similar to Hull Breacher in that, you know, Hull Breacher is maximized when you follow up with a Time Twister, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> 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 yes, Hull, true. <laughs> Hull, but Hull Breacher is not, it doesn't have to be maximized because it's one of those developmental disruptive creatures. It's just really good to do in response to a brainstorm or a preordain, right? It's really disruptive. Fairy Mastermind is also kind of maximized when you follow up with a time twister, but not really. You, you still only get one card. And it's also good in response to those cantrips, but also not really because it doesn't deny them anything. So it's not disruptive. It's just a it's just a Jame Day tome of sorts, the sort of Jame Day tome that you can draw two cards per turn cycle if you maximize it without putting in much extra effort. But it's the sort of creature that wants to be around for many turns to generate incremental advantage, similar to your Dark Confidants. It's not explosive, 
the most it's ever going to do the turn it comes down is draw you a card, right? Well, yes. And so it's much more akin to Dark Confidant and that style of yes. incremental card advantage has fallen away from the format. Okay. I think that this is really interesting. I like the fact I like the fact that um you can basically force your opponent to draw the second card on their end step. Yes. And that is good and I'm the card would be a lot worse if it didn't have that activated ability. Yeah. And then you can also, let's see. You can't flash this in in response to them getting a draw trigger. Oh yes, you can. So if they Well, to to a spell or an activated ability, you could, yes. sure. So if someone plays brainstorm, you could respond with this and then <laughs> How obnoxious. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brother. Well, and so the observation I'm making is simply that Vintage doesn't have right now a a top-tier deck that is really designed to go long other than Jeskai. That's okay. really the bottom Everything line. Everything is just And Jeskai is... Yeah. yeah, and Jeskai these days is perpetually in third or fourth place in terms of metagame representation. It's pretty impressive. Not a bad deck. Just that this card doesn't move the needle, right? This card doesn't let Jeskai do something that it can't do and today. And Jeskai isn't even running Gush these days. It's got Wastelands instead. Yeah. Sad Yeah, days. Jeskai has had to, had to... I know, it's had to adapt to the times. So I like Fairy Mastermind. It's an awesome card. It's sort of card I'm really attracted to, love to play. I'll play it a bunch of EDH, I'm sure. Yeah, it's so cool. And I'm not saying it's bad either. It has shown performances so far. Thus far, since release, it's put up about, I think it's four top eights. It's mostly in Jeskai, but um, Justin Gennari put up a fun 4x mastermind list with Paradoxical Outcome because obviously it's cool with Paradoxical Outcome, right? It represents extra card advantage when you can deploy it and pick it back up. Um, so I expect it to be the sort of card that could make an appearance, but the <clears throat> the decks we've seen so far, there has been one here in Jeskai, right? Two maybe. It's just never gonna be. It's never gonna be at the Snapcaster level when Snapcaster was at its prime, I don't think. And it's not gonna be in the long term. I don't think it's gonna be a four X thing, unless somehow the vintage metagame slows down a bunch. But you know how likely that is. Yeah, I predict of the three cards we've been discussing here: Phyrexian Sensor, Atraxa, and Fairy Mastermind. Numerically speaking, Phyrexian Sensor is probably gonna be the most popular for the while for a while to come. Yes. Atraxa has an inherent ceiling on how um how many copies oh. you're going to see. <laughs> yeah. And Fairy Mastermind, while it could go in a ton of decks, I think it's just less powerful in the metagame overall than the sensor is. And also it's not in the, the most dominant deck, which sensor is. But we'll see. We will see. We're going to watch these cards very closely. Um, I noticed that, that some of the Oathless are pairing Atraxa with Sarah's Emissary. Have you noticed that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Sarah em- Sarah's Emissary has become a, a very strong sideboard tactic, and it's especially good at fighting the creature decks because most of the time the creature decks answer to other creatures is to just try to ignore them, right? Swarm, go around them or go over them. And also, so that speaks to decks like Hollowvine, for example. Hollowvine has all of one card in snapback that could answer a Sarah's Emissary. And the other factor that's at play is that Mono White Initiative's primary creature removal effect is a creature itself in Solitude. And so an Emissary on Creatures has multiple aggro matchups where it is almost here to stay the moment moment it hits the table, right? And so I think that's why you're seeing more of of an appearance. And in some matchups too, some combo matchups like, say, Breach, for example, Emissary is the sort of effect that they must answer in order to win the game. 
right? Yeah. They can't just combo through it. Yeah. And so I think it's just strong enough that in, in enough matchups that it really slams the door on your opponent that it has become more and more popular. Uh, this is not for the podcast. Where, when did some, where did Sarah's Emissary come out of? What's that? It was Modern Horizons it was a few sets 2. ago. It Mar- okay, I see. It, it's been a while. Modern yeah. Horizons 2. I just haven't seen it. So we didn't, I don't remember us reviewing it either. So I'm pretty sure we didn't. <laughs> yeah, because it's a, uh, I mean, it, it's sort of a little bit like, remember the Odd Oath deck? <laughs> Reminds me of that sort of dynamic. Okay. Oh, yeah. Let's get back on track for a moment. So, Kevin, kind of wrapping this up, let's put a bow on it. If you mm-hmm. had to rank thus far, not looking forward, but thus far, performance of the new cards for vintage printed this year give me your rank order list i think one I think through it's, four whatever yeah i think you have to put phyrexian sensor first yeah it's numerically you know it, it's it's incrementalizing and doing an impersonation of so to speak arcana mamaria which makes it inherently a little less exciting but i've already given know. my opinion on what 75 percent of that card really is yeah. and it's great Atraxa is fun. Like if you're if you're the kind of player who's attracted to splashy effects, Atraxa is awesome. There's just no denying it. Like it's great. It she's here to stay. It's an awesome card. It's a great role player. I predict that it'll be here for and until they really start to push design of some monsters further, which I really hope they kind of don't. Um so those are one and two in my list, easy. Fairy Mastermind, as we've said, is 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 a I think it's a distant third on that list. Cool card, love it to death. We'll play it in EDH as much as i can but it it doesn't it's not moving the needle on vintage for me is there anything else out of uh the two big sets this year or any other small things that you think we should keep our eye on going forward well, any other there cards? was there was a lot of hype around mercurial spell dancer and that card i think i don't know how many top eights it's put up so i'd have to well, study let's, let's tell i our, think that card cool. what it does yeah mercurial spell dancer is ironically a phyrexian it's a two-mana blue creature. It's a 2-1. Can't be blocked. That's important. It's unblockable. And whenever you cast a non-creature spell, you put an oil counter on it. Then it has this combat damage trigger. So if you get in, deal damage, and you have two or more oil counters on it, you can remove two of them, and then the next spell you cast is copied. The it's, instant it's or like sorcery spell is Fallen copied. Fallen Empire's mechanic here, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're not far off. It was inspired by that. But... Yeah, so basically the idea is you play this, you, play, you go Landmox this, um, next turn you play some other non-creature spell like another Mox or a, a Cantrip, and then you put one oil counter on it, and then if you're lucky you can do it all on turn two, but it's hard. It's a little hard to set up. But either way, you get two oil counters on it, and then you copy something explosive. You copy your Ancestral, you copy your Time Walk, you copy something a little more tame like Expressive Iteration, maybe Demonic Tutor. Like, And because the Spell Dancer is unblockable, and because it triggers off casting non-creature spells, it tends to snowball. Because the spell you copied already puts back one oil counter yeah, on it. And so it's kind of trivial to set up these chains where you're doing powerful things and just, just having a snowball advantage. In a sense, it shares a lot of DNA with Dreadhorde Arcanist. Yeah. In that you're getting gradual incremental advantage out of over time out of your cantrips and other cheap spells. This, so it, it was very excited uh, for, for the sorry let me say that again the eternal community i think was very excited about this card and rightfully so right mono blue creature fits nicely in the curve rewards what people like to do which is play a whole bunch of non-creature spells and so there's been a lot of energy put into it i think in legacy and a little bit in vintage and it just isn't quite good enough yeah it, it's 
the, the thing about vintage decks you and I well know is that decks like Esper Tinker, Grixis Tinker, for example, are filled with powerful spells. But it turns out that most of them don't get better when you copy them. The counter spells you, you can't use that way. The tutors like Vamp Tutor, well, there's no, there's nothing there. Tinker sounds explosive, right? But modern Tinker decks are actually not designed to want to copy Tinker. Yes, you get benefit if you do. Yes, you could set up uh, Citadel plus top. Yes, you could set up Key Vault. But my point is more along the lines of you already should win if your Tinker resolves. You're not, you're not leaning on the double Tinker to win. And so point being that this kind of creature really tends to have its better home in the Dreadhorde Arcanist style decks, the, the decks that are just trying to go long, play all their cantrips twice, play their swords twice, and just overwhelm you with inter- incremental card advantage. And oh, by the way, we already have a creature that does that really well, and it's Dreadhorde Arcanist. This is a, does a pretty good Dreadhorde Arcanist impersonation. It beats down twice as fast. And it's unblockable, so there's none of that problem with Saga tokens standing in the way. So it has some certain advantages, but it also has some disadvantages. One toughness, blue dies to blasts, and it also takes some setup time. It doesn't necessarily cast a spell on turn two with its first attack, like Dreadhorde Arcanist usually does. So I think it's a good card. I think we're probably going to see experimentation with it, and in the future there might be the right deck for it, but it hasn't really manifest. All right. Well, uh, last question, Kevin. So you have, well, any other creatures that you wanted to, before I get to the last question, any other creatures that you wanted to say uh, are notable out of it? Since we didn't do the set review, just for completion's sake, anything (laughs) else that we want to note that you think might make make some waves or an appearance or two out of the two sets, which are, again, remind me, March of the Machines and what was the previous set? Yeah, Yeah, Phyrexia, all will be one. All will be one. Very difficult set name to remember. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a set name. It sounds like a command. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, Phyrexia had, by the way, had a new implementation of Phyrexian mana, which is something that you and I speculated about when we learned this set was coming. And we talked about the ways in which Phyrexian mana was a, the, you know, the original implementation was nothing short of a giant mistake. <laughs> well, it and, d- Depends what you mean by mistake, but sure, yeah. I, I, <laughs> well, it, it's undeniable that too many cards were printed with only Phyrexian <laughs> mana requirements. Yeah. Okay, you know? there you go. And yeah. those cards, the primary mistake in their design was the Phyrexian mana, yes. like Mental Misstep, like Gitaxian Probe, and many others. Dismember, I would argue, was a mistake too. It just isn't dominating metagames. But anyway, my point in bringing that up is that you and I shared our, I think, hesitancy and concern with it returning and I think they demonstrated a, a good learning and a lot of restraint with the implementation in this That's set. That's why there's no playable for vintage. Okay. <laughs> Not in the eternal sense. Yes. There are plenty for other formats, yes, but yes, yeah. that is right. Okay, last question then. So yeah. we've got a sense of what's performing so far. We've got a sense of maybe things to look out for. Kevin, what do you think? Do you think, uh, what do you think we should, which of these cards is on the upswing, if any? Do you think like Frexian? Sensor is going to carry it into the Moxie's nominations, or do you think one of these other cards, you think the this, uh, the fairy is going to be something that'll surge past it or anything like that? Well, yeah, in terms of so in other that words, just, particular just to be really comparison. clear, so I asked you on a performance thus far basis, rank the cards. Now rank them on where you think they'll be at the end of the year of the ones we've just looked at. 
I think, ironically, Fairy Mastermind has the most potential upside, but that's just because it has the most places to go. The sensor is already established. By the time we get to the end of the year, uh, Mono White Initiative will probably be a similar, maybe further diminished portion of the metagame, right? I won't be surprised if it's 5% by the end of the year. I won't be surprised if it's 12 But either way, the sensor will probably be a staple. Yeah, unless somewhere we get a new in printing. there, in that 75. Yeah. yeah, at which point it becomes a pretty strong candidate for card of the year. Yeah. If it's a staple in one of the one of the most, if not the it's, most popular deck. It's in the pole position, let's put it that way. Yep. Okay. Yep. Atraxa has an inherent ceiling, which I referenced already. She's splashy and fun and awesome. At the same time, unless something really changes, I predict that Oath will continue to be a, a five or six or seven percent deck. The occasional spike here or there. Oath has a natural ceiling on how how dominant it can be for protracted periods because it's so easy to fight the tactics of Oath that it's easy to tamp it back down even if it gets a big shot in the arm. So what I'm what I'm translating that into is that I don't believe a tracks over really stand out by the end of the year. All right. Fairy Mastermind has a lot of room to grow. Like <laughs> I'm not predicting that vintage becomes a lot slower. As I've said, I think that's kind of laughable by today's standards unless something really dramatically changes about magic fundamentally. But Fairy Mastermind has a lot of applications, right? Yeah. It's already showing up in PO in Jeskai. I saw there's one top eight, I think, that was bug. It, so it has a lot of homes. It can be a one or a two of in a whole bunch of different decks and with some slightly different roles to play. It's a dramatically different card in PO than it is in Jeskai, for example. Yeah. So that demonstrates some flexibility of application, which I like. I'd like to offer an observation. Um, mm-hmm. All three of these cards have a common thread, in my opinion. They embody the shift in vintage particularly pronounced since, I don't know, the final wave of Turbo Xerox restrictions that kind of neutered the Xerox archetype, a shift towards really permanent-based dominance. Mm -hmm. You know, the only exception to that is sort of the presence of Doomsday in the format, which is much more of a throwback to the spell era. But Kevin, all of the (laughs) archetypes, I mean, we've seen, uh, certainly the initiative decks represent this and the urza you know the urza land but really with hull breacher i think was maybe the turning point do you remember what what year that was was that 2020 2019 thereabouts but i feel like that was kind of the turning point where when you now that you have the critical mass you have lavinia and hull breacher the games have become these kind of ground wars to establish quick dominance on the board and then build and maintain that dominance, where it used to be for so many years, through the final, most recent Turbo Xerox era, it was build, gain and build, gain a card advantage dominance over your opponent, and then build that lead. You know, it's like a basketball team that gets a, a, a three-point lead, extended to an eight-point lead, and then a 15-point <laughs> lead, right? Right. But, well, analogically, right. what you do, you know, the Xerox mirror was get a small card advantage, milk that, build on it until you have overwhelming advantage. I mean, basically, these are all examples of permanent-based dominance, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the um, particularly Ataxa and the Sensor are just more piling on in that direction. But even this other creature is about <clears throat> picking your spot, getting something going through permanence, rather than getting it through direct card advantage and building your hand. And it's right, so interesting right. that these further... And I, it's hard to say that these are... It's possible 
that the success these cards have had so far, which is very preliminary in some of these cases, is a, a byproduct of that dynamic or emblematic of the dynamic, right? It's hard to know which, in other, is it driving the dynamic or is it a byproduct? <laughs> is it cause or effect? Yeah. Either way, they are examples of it, expressions of it that we're seeing. And, and yeah. go ahead. I, I don't, I just to add to your point, I think that another step along that journey was Karn the Great Creator, which it's easy to lose sight of now for how dominant it was yeah. in that brief period that summer. That was the summer of 2019. But Karn had to get restricted for that reason. Yeah. Pre-pandemic. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, but I, I, Whole Breacher, well, that came out in late 2019, I think. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That was, um, whatever the case may be. It was. Hull Breacher and um, Opposition Agent came out really proximate yeah. to one another. Yeah. They, they, I think they were in the same set. They were in the commander sets, right? Hall Breacher was Commander Legends Commander. Yeah. November 2019, December 2019. I don't have the date on here. I'll tell you. And Opposition Agent was also date, in Commander Legends. Okay, yeah. The release date was November of 2020, Commander Legends. So there you go. There we so go. So you, yep. you have this moment, this turning point. You know what? It's interesting that it's the end of 2020 because essentially <laughs> as we go into this this decade, this 2020s, we finally have a real decisive break in what vintage looks like. It's now just permanent wars and all the advantages baked into the permanence. It's like, imagine if Gadok Teague had dominated, you know, 2005. It's like so interesting. Right. And right. it's just these jostling over the permanent wars and then trying to use the permanence to disrupt your opponent's tactics and their strategies rather than using the spells in your hand principally to do that. Instead, the spells in hand are used to bolster, protect, or defy the permanent-based tactics. How? So I, I'm totally with you. How would you contrast that phenomenon to the historic, and by historic I mean 15, 20 years ago now, definition of aggro control? And really, let's just yeah. point to TOG, yeah. right? Or, or maybe, maybe GROW would be a better example, because TOG borders on aggro combo. Yeah. Um, it would be like if the principal function of the Quirion Dryad was to prevent your opponent from drawing spells, playing spells, <laughs> drawing cards, playing spells, <laughs> or deploying mana, right? I mean, that's sort of yeah. what it is. It's like, you know, the, the, the power on these on Lavinia, Hallbreacher, all these things is secondary to their disruptive yes. function. Now, I'm not saying if they were 1-4, they'd see playable, but they, it's the combination, right? It's the fact that they're 3-3 three, three or 2-power or 3-power or 4-power even yeah. the, in combination with their disruptive role that I think gives them their weight, their punching weight. Uh, and I think that the flip side of that, what you just said is true, but I think the flip side from my perspective is that all of the disruptive elements in Grow came from the hand. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it's like yeah. The, the, the none of the growing creatures, you, none of them, not not even yeah. the, the apex predator growing creature, Monastery Mentor, <laughs> had zero right. disruptive ability except as like generating blockers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or yeah. just the sheer... Uh, threat of offense, you know, but none of them did this, and we've seen a real shift. It's it's amazing. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know whether monastery mentor was the last restriction. I think of the the Xerox restrictions, right? I mean, it was. I think that was the kit, the nail in the coffin to that kind of approach. But ironically, I don't know how well positioned a four X mentor deck would be today. I mean, let's unrestrict I don't, I don't mentor. Wanna, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to. I'm not lobbying. I'm just saying that yeah. it's a different world. To your yeah, point, yeah. I mean, you've got more arcane laboratory 
creatures now, right? I mean, that was... Right. You have two of them in just the white thing. Now we've got Archon of Sensor and Amaria. The Sensor uh, and Amer- Archon of Yeah, Amaria. and I'm not, I'm not saying it's some kind of uh, grand insight, but it's worth noting that Mono White Initiative does not play Monastery Mentor. Even though it has a healthy... You know, a healthy artifact count, a healthy spell count, but well, it's the the creature count is still too high for it to be it's, maximized. It's not a Phyrexian creature. <laughs> it's a human monk, so... Well, and the fact that Solitude is a creature actually is contributing to that a fair bit, ironically. But anyway, that, that's neither here nor there, I would think. The, I, I totally agree with your point. Um, I don't think it's... I, I don't think it's possible to return to that world. I think that's a yeah, one-way journey. It's that... And that, yeah. I think, also helps helps explain why the hopes that we pinned on this oil counter creature were, were, <laughs> mercurial were spell dancer forlorn. because that that's yeah. more of a, a that that's more of a card that we would have been intrigued by and you know seen in the you know maybe 10 to 15 years ago right not you know like when we got really excited about i don't know i mean we would be we would be really excited about a two mana creature that a two mana ophidian that can't be blocked are you kidding me in blue it would have been amazing 12 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. It would have been really intriguing, but we're not in that moment anymore. It's like everything is now permanent-based. So I think I think yeah. that's what we're going to see. And so we just need to evaluate not only the metagame evolution, but also new cards with that in mind. going. That's the biggest possible picture. Yep, totally agree. And I also think that's a major contributing factor to why the primary, the closest thing we have to a consistent control deck in the format is Jeskai. And the a strong contributing factor to that is the quality of removal that leans on swords to plowshares. Yes. Right. And th- picture a couple of years back when people were playing lightning bolt and vintage. Yes. Right. Yes. Like think well, about the, that. The reason for that is you needed you needed a, a, a spell that could both remove a mentor slash pyromancer and a and a planeswalker. And a planeswalker. And that's now right. the importance of planeswalkers has just subsided because it's these creed the the imperative is getting rid of yeah. these creatures. And that's what why that tell you? that's why Bug has really fallen by the wayside. Yes. Because it while it has some removal that can hang with Jeskai, like your fatal pushes and your well, Force of Vigor is obviously ubiquitous. But it Bug just doesn't have that that swords to plowshares Think how that can reliably that do everything it needs to do. Bug was is the la- was the well, except for the December Eternal Weekend, was the most recent uh vintage paper champion from 2019 yeah. it was the apex yeah. predator in 2019 right yeah and it's completely fa- wow it's 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 so interesting how time marks <laughs> changes but really we are now i think deep enough into this decade that we can see what's happened and i think yeah. we can see it now with greater clarity so that's what's happened the 20 totally aughts agree. the 20 aughts were very much turbo xerox shop said all that good stuff po that era is done and it, it's not coming and back to your point. It's not. It is notable. <laughs> now vintage would... is dominated by white creatures. <laughs> if you had told me that 15 years ago, I would have given you a hearty and continuous laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is notable to examine, though, the ways in which the initiative mechanic has brought mono-white aggro to the fore, though. Yes. Because when you think about it, the initiative itself... It was already, doesn't meet any of the definitions. It was already on the come that you I mean, just you described, had, right? Yeah, you had Thalia 2.0, obviously Thalia 1.0, and a bunch of mm-hmm. ancillary cards around it. You know, there was no joke. Like you yep. had also the um, 
mono white with the uh, the colorless creatures, uh, Drazi, Eldrazi. The, the Eldrazi, yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it's not uh, it was not inconceivable that with a good enough set of printings you could have a serious mono white threat. I mean, mono white decks were would pop in the top eights every now and again. Mono white aggro. Now, the, you, yeah. now with these, I mean. This initiative thing is just absurd. It's like we've never seen. It's almost so meta. We've never seen anything like it in Magic, where you actually yeah. have like, you know, a, a whole set of actions and activities that just trigger from a card coming into play, and then you make decisions over turns. We've never seen anything even <laughs> like that before. You need a whole. I mean, Kevin, it's like playing a video game where you need a map next to you. Like we've never seen Magic need, <laughs> you know, a pamphlet next to you, <laughs> right? I mean, a pamphlet. Yeah, I love yeah, it. Pamphlet magic. <laughs> Okay, here's the river. Exactly, exactly. I've never seen anything like that before. So, so yeah, I, I'm I'm simply noting how it, it's funny that the initiative mechanic and its associated creatures are actually they don't actually qualify in the the way that you're establishing in terms of being sure. permanent based disruption. They're not disruption. They don't but disrupt so at all. Overwhelming advantage. It's yeah, cr- it's and then the rest of the deck yes. is d- d- designed to disrupt yes. between Thalia and Archon and Sensor. But let's be clear: some of the rooms in the dungeons are disruptive. These, it's not like these aren't disruptive. They do things. Yeah, the the typical rooms, though, they advantage. really aren't. Right? They're they're card advantage and beat down a little <laughs> bit of mana with a treasure. You know, um, it, it, still. But it's abs- the, the, it's on a scale we've not seen before. It's absurd. Yeah, but it does <laughs> cause me to note that. The, if if we're talking about the the de facto pole position deck of the format, mono white, not every month, but it's, it's kind of a de facto right now. You have to be able to beat it. That deck is still just a 30-creature deck that can't disrupt you in any other way. There's no null rods, not in the main. There's no winter orb, right? There's no spheres anymore that... There's no revoker. There's no tangle. Like, look, when you play a mox on your first turn against mono white, that mox is going to be in play next turn and it's going to tap for one, right? Unlike a lot of other historical aggro matchups. And so I find it interesting that the the vintage format still, despite being so permanent and so um, it is just disruptive permanent based, as you're describing, still has no room for a deck that could just play, say... Um, Toxic Deluge, right? right. That's amazing. I, I made top eight at champs yeah. with Toxic Deluge in my deck. <laughs> what year was that? <laughs> Granted, that was more than 10 years ago. Okay. But the don't you find it interesting that this de facto dominant deck, well, if, if, you were to, if you were to announce Toxic Deluge and remove all their permanents, they, it would remove all the disruptive elements. You know what else? Save waste. You know what else was a contributing force on this path towards permanent dominance? was the companion mechanic and specifically Loris. Mm. Yeah, true. Um, we saw with that that period, that couple-month period where Loris was just the most dominant force in Vintage, we saw cards seeing play that had <laughs> never seen play in a Vintage tournament in the entire history of the Magic. <laughs> I mean, yeah, dead weight. What? Dead weight. Seal of Fire. <laughs> I mean, like, <Yeah>. God. <laughs> cards that would yeah. barely see play, Kevin, in a block deck... We're suddenly, <laughs> we're suddenly like, yeah. yeah. Um, that that's it, it's true. Cards that are not good enough for block constructed, they're like, yeah, um, become vintage all stars. And then, yeah, like first team, <laughs> first team vintage playable. Um, the um, I registered Seal of Fire. Yeah, but 
I think what's interesting, Kevin, we have new companion cards coming out soon, right? Well, not announced yet. Okay. That, so we are expecting to get new, new companions when we return to Ikoria, but that's not coming out for a while and it has not actually been confirmed. Okay. Um, the closest thing to confirmation we have is that Mark Rosewater hasn't ruled it out, right? He hasn't said, yeah, we're never going to do that again. He's said, we learned a lot of good lessons, <laughs> which probably means that we're going to get new companions. When does that set come out? Oh, I don't think we have a date yet. Let me double check. Um, uh, no, no, we don't have an unofficial date for a future Ikoria set. It's just kind of a, a when, not an okay. if type situation. All right, so yeah, that's, something, not this that's year. something we need to keep our eyes peeled for the return of the absolutely we will be watching that keenly all right kevin well thank you to everyone for joining us i know we haven't <laughs> done a uh, a podcast since i think our set review right was episode 111 yeah no, sorry the end the year in review the year in review yeah. yeah so we're gonna get back on the we're back on the we're back in the saddle right kevin um <laughs> that's right and uh we're gonna start harassing people to tell us when eternal weekend is gonna be because i want to get that scheduled if i'm gonna go so yeah, absolutely. Anything else before we wrap up, Steve? Great to be talking some vintage. I can't wait to play paper again. Thanks again to the folks who prepare this data that we've come to rely on. Our show and a significant portion of the community are better for it. And it's just, it's just a, a Herculean effort, which I continue to be grateful for. And with that, thank you for listening to episode 112 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this show, please be sure to rate us on iTunes so that other magic players can find our show. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays.